Well, this is the first time I've ever sat down and had a proper chat with Hanny Alston. She was a, an absolute superstar. This was a fun chat. I'm uh, I'm really pumped to share it with you. Sorry, it's a little bit late this week, guys. We um we we're trying to organise a time for us to catch up and chat, and it turns out it's right now Wednesday morning. And I thought, all right, this is the one that I want to post this week. So here we are. Hey, let me um let me tell you a little bit about Hanny. I'm reading this from her biography at the back of her book, Finding My Feet. Because um, I just think it explains who she is really nicely. Then I'll tell you a little bit about this episode. So Hanny's a peak performance coach with a heritage in assisting trail and ultra distance runners to reach their pinnacle of potential. She's an author, keynote speaker, and host of the Find Your Feet podcast, where she shares the voices that need to be heard. She was the 2006 World Orienteering Champion and a past winner of both the Melbourne and New Zealand Marathon champs. She's also the current race record holder for multiple road trail and ultra running events she's achieved many of the fastest known times on remote trails she is truly a creature of the wild and hanny's feet are the happiest in a pair of muddy trail shoes exploring hanny is a she's a person i just look up to because i feel like she thrives in the areas that i still need to improve at a little bit she's super present during this conversation very easy person to talk to um super personable i'm just i'm really excited for her as I said, she's uh, the author of her book, Finding My Feet, and the Trail Running Guidebook. I'm going to get her back on the podcast again ASAP because there's just so much that was, um, you know, that we didn't get a chance to go into, mainly because I stupidly said, let's just chat for an hour. I should have said, let's chat for four. But nonetheless, it's a really good chat. This episode is brought to you by Precision Hydration. Now, if you haven't heard of Precision Hydration, you need to find out about them. Check out their website, precisionhydration.com. Let me tell you a bit about them. They're a, they're a company that focuses on personalizing hydration plans. They're, they're not about just throwing out generic advice to every athlete and saying, make sure you drink this drink to, to be well hydrated. They offer a free sweat test, which I encourage you to check out. I've linked it in the uh, show notes. So if you want to get that there, that'll take you straight through. Through that sweat test, it'll ask you a few personal questions uh, about the way you sweat, the quantity of your sweat, the color of your sweat. And from there, they're able to point you in the direction of what products they recommend that you use for your specialized or your specific, I should say, kind of sweat. If you want more of an, uh, even more of an in-depth overview, you can have a free conversation with one of their sweat experts, which I've also linked in the show notes below. So make sure you take advantage of that. They're offering all relaxed running listeners a 15% discount off their first purchase. So if at checkout you use the coupon code RELAXED15, that's all in capitals, R-E-L-A-X-E-D-1-5, that's going to knock 15% off your first purchase. Also recorded a little bit of bonus material with Hanny. So members, that is going to be available really soon. I'm just going to get that prepared and upload it for you, especially for you trail runners. It's a valuable resource for you. If you're not a member yet, make sure you jump on board. Uh, we offer a three-day free trial. Then it's 10 bucks US a month. After that, you get access to all our training programs, our 28-day uh, running challenge. You'll also get access to the Elite Expert Video Libraries, which is members' questions being answered by professionals in their field, both runners, doctors, physios, the list goes on. So that library is ever-growing. Um, you'll also get access to the 26 bonus podcast episodes. So, hey, jump on board, relaxrunning.com slash join. That's the Relax Running membership. But guys, that's about enough from me. Uh, hey, if you want to watch this, go over to YouTube. It's going to be available there as well. So it's just on the Relax Running channel. It's new, but we're starting to get a we're starting to get a few videos up. So go check those out. All right. Hey, enjoy this conversation with myself and Hanny Alston. 
I um I was actually having a bit of a chat to my wife this morning because we were having a, a flick through your books, um, and uh, I was saying to her that I, I love a story like yours because it's it's one of those stories where we all we're all confronted with like really interesting and difficult challenges at, at some stage in our career or in our life and. I always find it fascinating just to to watch the way that people respond to those really difficult challenges, and um, you, you sort of can't miss yours because I was I was having a flick through the prologue just to get my head around um, the the little details of your story, and it, it sounded like two thousand and five was a fairly pivotal year for you in the sense of a setback and and a potential or a future overcoming. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think in the book I describe it as the perfect storm. You know, I was nineteen years of age and had three huge hurdles thrown at me all at once and just didn't see any of it coming, to be honest. I'd just been on that, what felt like a relatively straight line of growth and maturing and um, improvements in my sporting career. And I just had this, these big dreams and I just didn't see this sort of firestorm, this hurricane coming towards me until it, it landed. And at the time I sort of felt like I'd fallen in this large hole and I felt that the thing that could help me move forward and to get out of the hole was to keep believing in my dreams. And and the dream at that time was um, I was in the sport of orienteering at that point and I had this dream of getting to the the pinnacle of the Junior World Orienteering Championships, which in my sport was sort of the Olympics for the junior years. Um, And so I'd use sport as something to kind of help me move forward in life but, you know, I look at it now and I just sort of realise that we all live with a human experience. You know, we all have times of struggle and times of change and times of needing to grow and adapt and evolve and, and 2020 has just been the perfect example of it. And so, you know, when it came to, like, thinking about writing the book, I just, there was so much that I was nervous and felt very vulnerable to share because it has been a journey of a lot of ups and a lot of downs over time. But I, you know, I came back to this point of like in some of those really challenging moments, how much strength I gained when someone would come up to me and say, you know, me too, yeah, I get it, me too. And there was such a power in that. And, you know, so I, I wanted to write down the book as, um, as honestly and openly as I could so that people could connect to any part of it that they needed to connect to. And that seems to be what's actually happened is, you know, I get, um, you know, I won't, I won't stereotype it, you know, the fully grown um, testosterone laden males who are like, come to you and like, I'm so motivated to get out in the mountains and like lean in and run wild. And, you know, and then I get the soft, gentle types who've, been through some of the same struggles to you know that I have and uh, or the parents that connect in and, and who've given the book to their daughter or their son and so you know it seems to be resonating you know where it needs to resonate and for that I'm like super grateful <laughs> yeah was that the intention going into it because I know in my own life it's always comforting to find out someone else that I've looked up to or that I've heard speak has has gone through a really interesting struggle because for whatever reason when you're going through it, and I know in the challenging periods that I've been through in my life, whether it's grief or just difficult transitions or, you know, just insert whatever it is that's going on in your life there, yet a lot of the time you feel like you're, you're all by yourself and no one's ever been through it and you can't really understand it. And 
I think I, I look at the people who have um, that I stumble across online or that I hear speak or, or who just enter my life who have actually sort of they've been able to traverse their way through those difficult experiences and and they always seem to be the people that I look up to the most. It's it's weird. I, I feel like the wisest people are the most inspirational people in my life for whatever reason have have not only been through the the hard stuff but they haven't let it um, let them become too cynical. They've seemed to be able to use it to help shape their character in a even more inspiring way. So when you were putting the um, when you were putting the words down in in your book, finding my feet, was that was that your goal, or is it? Because I, I know it's an interesting process trying to write a book. A lot of people use it as a almost a therapeutic way to, um, yeah, almost like a, a long journal entry to understand what it is that they've been through, and at the same time hit a few points with the people that they're writing it for. So what was the what was the inspiration going into the the book for you? Yeah, that's a really great question, Tyson. Um. There certainly wasn't the sort of like needing to kind of stop story my life and come to resolutions with it and and use it as like a a self-discovery tool. Um, To be honest, I had learned previous to that that I kind of needed to do the work on self and I really needed to to reach a point of understanding who Hanny was and and to live unapologetically in her shoes. So I, I... I felt like I came to the book with a sense of strength of self. And I think that that was really important, especially when you're writing a memoir at the age of 30. Well, I started writing when I was probably 31, 32, um, where so many of the people who are involved in that story are still around and still alive. Um, So you can have some fairly, I didn't want to be the one that kind of rattled their ships, if you know what I mean, because our stories are so interwoven, all of us. Um, so the motivation for the book really came because I felt, you know, I've grown up through the elite athletics world. I was an elite swimmer, I was elite in athletics and road running, marathon running, and then elite in the sport of orienteering before I got to the trail ultra running scene. And so, but I felt like often the story presented was too simplistic that, um, you know, if you lean in and you do the work and you um, are dedicated towards the cause of athleticism, then hopefully eventually you can rise towards the top. But my my experience, the experience then connecting with others, like when you have an experience, it opens the doors to conversations with others and you realise their stories and you realise that their father also attempted suicide or they've also struggled with anorexia and they've also had massive injury hurdles. And then in 2011, I went to work at the Australian Institute of Sport pre-London and my role was in athlete welfare, looking after the aspiring Olympians and Paralympians anyone from the age of 14 in the gymnastics and soccer programs through to, you know, the 40-year-olds who are in the Paralympic rowing programs. And what I kind of realised was that so, so, so many of these individuals had overcome challenges and used these challenges as strengths and strengths of character to help them as elite athletes. And the more I looked and the more I realised that, yeah, the story wasn't as simple and we need to have people sharing these stories with others so that when they do face those moments of challenge they know that they can rise through them and they can even come back as not come back but they can even strengthen in self as they as they lean in and so yeah writing the book was about wanting to put a story my story down so that 
someone else who may just need a little bit of mojo or a little bit of me too moment could pick it up and just be like, uh, you know, there's comfort and reassurance and excitement in that. Um, yeah. So it's not all about the hardship and it's hard, but I don't think you can ever tease the hardship out from, you know, the vibrant times. <laughs> um, yeah, they go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good point. Have you ever heard of the hero's journey? Uh I love the hero's journey. I teach the hero's journey all the time, but that is, but that's exactly what it is. Um, and I, as as you probably are aware, the more times we go on the hero's journey, um, the more times we embrace it, the more we realize like we can strongly keep progressing through it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And I gain so much strength these days from these moments of like, ah, oh, that's an ally. Oh, that's a tester. Oh, the great ordeal is coming up, you know, prepare yourself, Han, and, like, I use it because it helps you to feel comfort and security and the knowledge that this is just life. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. It's uh, the idea of, a, the idea of a, a hardship in your life. It, I feel like your perspective on that hardship changes when you realise you haven't just fallen into a hole. Like, that, just that perspective that it is actually a journey, that, you're, that there's, there's um, I guess, little gems that can be picked up along the way, even though you feel like you're there by yourself and... Like yeah. the process of overcoming is going to be really difficult. I guess it was what I was saying earlier. It was the, the, the wise people or the inspirations that I look at in my life are the ones who have made that journey and they've come back sort of refined and, and transformed rather than just bitter and scared. Um, and I, I thought that it actually didn't surprise me that yeah, you're sort of all over it and teach that quite often. I was talking to, do you know Dave McNeil, the Australian distance runner or know yeah. of him? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I- very well yeah uh awesome because that was that was one we're uh we're sharing notes we're in a, a bit of a group chat we do a a podcast with an american guy bert who's a psychologist and um and then there's dave and myself and for whatever reason there's so many nice analogies that just fit beautifully with life and with running and training and everything else that goes with that but one of the things that we uh swap often is just book recommendations and one of the book recommendations um, was just any of Joseph Campbell's book, but especially his The Hero's Journey, because I, I just right. I feel like <laughs> I feel like it just gives you a beautiful opportunity to, as we've sort of established, just change that perspective of what it is that you're going through um, in sport or in life. But but before I go too far down this rabbit hole, Hanny, I was I was hoping we could sort of just rewind a little bit to, to 2005, and you could unpack that year mm. a little more for those of you know who haven't heard of you or heard your story just yet. Mm, absolutely. Um, so in a nutshell, I I probably have to rewind slightly before that to put context to it. But um, I, so, you know, I grew up on a, on a hobby farm in Tasmania, very idyllic childhood, total, total imp all the time, um, absolute rat bag at school uh, and was involved a lot in the sport of swimming and always that had been my dream I just saw that that was my sport and um, through whimsical ways I found myself in the sport of orienteering at about the age of 15 and um, realised that it was where my gifts truly lay at that time and I just had these opportunities suddenly to travel the world and to meet all these extraordinary people and race overseas at world championships and yeah, and I had this knack, I had this gift. Um, not instantly. It was one of those things that you had to kind of push aside the bushes to, to find the gems. 
But I was, you know, in 2004, I found myself on the podium at the Junior World Orienteering Titles in Switzerland. Um, I was making podiums at the Senior World Orienteering Championships in Japan. Like I really was right on that cusp of, you know, the, <laughs> I guess the ultimate of success um, in that sport, which is to win a world title. And so that was the dream. Um at that time, I was also living another dream, which would have been to study medicine. So I was at med school in Tasmania. Um, and, yeah, and then in 2005, I just got back from the World Championships. And as I'd been racing there, I'd been running down through this neck-high bamboo, like getting whacked and thwacked by bamboo, and I managed to catch my foot in a hole. I'm just, yeah, anyway... As it turned out, by the time I got home, um, I found out I'd ruptured every single ligament in my right ankle and the conversation progressed to my coach saying to me at the time that if I went through surgery, he thought I would never run again and if I didn't go through surgery, uh, the surgeon was saying that I would never run again and I guess like it was just a really hard moment to like feel like you just found this thing that you loved and loved so unconditionally and it was just almost being taken away from you. But anyway, I decided that I would do my surgery in the SWATFAT week of medical examinations because I'm not very good at sitting down. <laughs> so a perfect opportunity. That doesn't work when you're high on morphine. <laughs> um, then three weeks into the recovery journey, my... My father had a huge bipolar incident and tried to take his own life in a very, very graphic, dramatic way. And um, I sort of became somewhat of like the primary carer in my family. Um, the university were unable to postpone any of my medical exams. So I was at this point where I was sitting medical examinations on crutches with a father in hospital for six months and... It was just a really tough time um, and I just felt like it, you know, 19 years of age, I, like I said, I'd fallen in this hole and I just had this deepest belief that the things that were going to get me out of this were honesty and openness and leaning into my dreams and that's what I did. Um, and now whether or not I was running away from things is, I guess, open to interpretation still but... Um, six months later, I stood on the top of the world podium, not just at the junior level in Lithuania, but also at the senior level in Denmark, which happened to be a very um, visual year because it was the year that Princess Mary of Tasmania married the, the Danish prince. And this race happened to be at his summer palace in, in Aarhus in Denmark. And so, you know, I was given my, my medallion by the Prince of Denmark. Um, I was another, you know, Tasmanian that suddenly had popped into stardom in a in a country where orienteering is one of the biggest sports that they have. Like, it's huge over there. And so, um, yeah, so it just sort of suddenly my world just rotated at a million miles an hour. Um but I remember as I got on the plane to come home, I just had this huge wake-up moment where it was like, wow, <laughs> success doesn't change anything, honey. Like you are still the same person and you still have to come home and still put all the pieces together. Um, 
and the pieces had just got more fragmented because by the time I got home, my parents had sold the family home that I'd grown up in for the last 19 years, 20 years, and, you know, my father was still just, you know, recuperating and, and life was giddy. <laughs> and so that that was the perfect storm of 2005. Um, I just think there were so many amazing lessons and I'm grateful to have had them at such a young age to to realize that success is a beautiful golden thing and it's something that we should aspire towards but it's not going to change you it's not going to define you um and that that was i think such a great lesson because after that i you know i'm ultimately have been able to reframe my athletic endeavors and my work endeavors to be about deep real authentic experience rather than stardom and that's been important. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, there's there's countless stories of people who reach the pinnacle of their chosen sport, only to realise the I guess the the finish line. It's a it's a little bit of a hollow feeling potentially, or or after some time you realise okay, like my my mind's just racing to the next goal. And I think Jim Carrey was a great example. I can't remember what award it was that he won. Maybe an Academy Award or a gold. I I can't remember exactly, but it was a huge award, and he was in Hollywood. And it was the third one that he won. And he goes, uh, halfway through his speech, he's like, I wish everyone could win three of these awards so that they could um, go home at night and realise that everything that you thought would make you happy in your life wasn't the answer. Completely. And, and that's completely it. And so now, you know, my motto in life is grow wild, play wild, perform wild. And it really boils down to at the end of the day, you have to know yourself and you have to be comfortable walking in your own shoes when you peel back everything that you do, everything that you think you are, everything that you chase and want in life, who's happening at the end of the day. Um, and who is the support network that supports that? Because the higher you climb, the stronger your support network needs to be. And, and that was the the part of 2005 that was so challenging was that my entire support network got pulled away. Um, and then Play World is about le lean into the things that you love and learn to love them unapologetically because I think so many of us do get pulled around by, like, what our friends are doing and, um, you know, fear of missing out. We enter races for that reason rather than, like, this is something that really makes my toes tingle. Mm -hmm. And then I think once you have those foundations, that pyramid at the base, then, you know, you can rise towards the top of the pyramid, which is perform wilder. And that's all the like, what do you eat? What do you drink? How hard should I train? How many miles should I do? Like all of the, <laughs> the, the stuff um, that comes last. And I think that what I, where I see, in the times where I've gone wrong in my journey or when I've seen athletes just pushing too hard, too fast, too far, has been, you know, this desperate want to get to the top of the tree. They like to, to reach their dream but without being willing to do all the work on self at the bottom. And that was what 2005 taught me was that I was just shaking in my own sort of shoes. My life had got ripped apart. My identity had changed so much and my support networks had gone. And so, yes, I became a world champion, but do I think that I was a champion? No, because I, I found it harder and harder and harder to keep putting results and life together after that point. And I talk a lot about that in the book. I, you know, I fell into the holes of anorexia. I 
over trains. I had two coaches pass away, one to suicide, one to a heart attack in training. I ran away. I moved to New Zealand. I just was shaking on my own two feet. And it's been later on, you know, as a mature-aged athlete and businesswoman, like it, it's really come to light, like how important it has been to just really embrace who Hani is, learn who she is, have that support network, do what I love, not what I think I should be doing. And and then all the performance stuff just naturally begins to flow after that. And they're the champions. That's the Serena Williams. That's the like Tiger Woods. It's, they're, they're, the, they're the champions and they keep coming up and they keep coming up and they keep coming up and performing and performing and performing and they're the ones that I admire the most too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that's a that's a really good point. This is a field that I'm I'm both fascinated in and and really passionate about the the idea of just figuring out what you know like who who you are particularly. But I know especially at the start, it's a it's a really difficult process to try and navigate your way through that because I know that when it comes to um, you know watching what other people are doing, my my emotions can go wild if I'm not super careful and go, no, that's, that's what I want because it looks really good from my perspective, what they're going through. But then when you're actually honest enough with yourself and you can maybe just let those emotions subside a little bit. And, and I like Stephen Covey in his, in his book, seven habits are highly effective people. I remember once I was, I was actually, uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was in 2015, I was in a, a bit of a transition period myself where I'd moved from distance running and had a whole heap of spare time and was like, oh, I don't know what to do with all this time. And a couple of years earlier, I'd written a bucket list and I was like, all right, number one on the bucket list is climb Mount Everest. And I was like, okay, let's go for that. And I'd never experienced mountain climbing. I didn't know if I liked it. And it's probably just a full-blown ego thing trying to impress people. Um, I don't know for sure if that's what it was, but I'm, I'm sure it played a part. But I remember uh, I actually, I had to go on a qualifying trip in 2015 and the reason I had to go on the qualifying trip was the company that I was aiming to climb with in 2016, the following April, said, mate, like you've never climbed a mountain before. Um, you've got to climb these two mountains to qualify um, before we even consider taking you. And I handled the altitude really well and um, I got up the first mountain, which was Mount Lobachet, but there was one called Island Peak. And the, the morning of that um, climb, I, I got up and the Sherpas had prepared us some meals. And I remember... The meal was, it was just oats, it was porridge, but it was cooked with water. And I remember eating it, and first of all, thinking this is disgusting, but second of all, thinking it was kind of lukewarm. And I was like, oh, I know that, like, for me to eat this, like, I, I probably should have really boiled water because it was a little bit dirty over there. And us Westerners' stomachs aren't great when it comes to Nepalese water, especially up in the mountains, yeah. and um, or the water that we were carrying with us. And uh, anyway, about three hours later, we were about to start climbing, and I was like, oh, no, I'm in, I'm in some serious trouble here. And... I was throwing my guts up and got about two hours into the climb. I just said to the guys, mate, like, I'm, I'm done, which was pretty much an automatic. You're not climbing Everest next year. But I got back down and sort of once I texted my friends and family or whatever, I, I still had about a week in Kathmandu once we flew back from Lukla. And uh, I remember one night I was just sitting there at a, at a bar by myself. Like, that's a that sounds like a real alcoholic story. It wasn't. I was sitting there having a meal. <laughs> and... Uh, and I was reading Stephen Covey's book, and, and he asked the question, like, if, you, if you're trying to figure out who you are, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? Mm. And I, I remember it so vividly. I was sitting there, and I was thinking, that's an amazing question. Like, it was kind of confronting. And, and for me, after sort of a few – it started there, but, like, after a few years, I thought I was like, okay, like, I'd would, I would personally – I want to invest my life into probably five or six things. And for me, they boiled down to, to my faith, um, like family and friends or relationships – 
Um, while I'm here on earth, my health, uh, my career, uh, or in, in terms of you know, what am I doing with my time, and, uh, and hopefully some form of contribution. And my last one, which I added about 12 months later, was, was adventure. And I thought, oh, like that, that's a pretty good group of things to, to really invest my time in. I think if I flourished in as many of those areas as I could while I'm here on earth, I could, I could be laying on my deathbed, a, deathbed a, a fairly happy man. But just that process of trying to understand you know, what the core values are and, and what the key passions are was, I know, difficult for me. What, do you, what did it sort of look like for you? Was it a little bit of a process and a journey of unpacking where you wanted to invest your time and energy? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I just think it, it has been a process. I think that word that you just mentioned is is absolutely spot on. Um, for me, um, it it really began in 2009. Uh, I came back to Tasmania, but I've been living in, in New Zealand. I, I um, left medicine and was studying primary school teaching, <laughs> uh, an interesting choice for someone who didn't like school. Uh, or rules, so I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't. I, w- I wasn't the greatest role model for the girls that I taught. I feel, uh, just uh, sorry to interrupt. You've echoed. Uh, I, I just finished a twelve-month part-time gig at a primary school, and I've promised myself it never happens again for the exact same reasons that you just said. So anyway, I just wanted to offer you that to say, hey, I understand how you must have felt. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> moment there. Lots of friends, but um. Yeah, but I like I just come back from um, Auckland and and inner city teaching in Melbourne at a private girls' school, and I just uh, my mum my mum was un- a bit unwell, and I'd come back to help look after her, and I just found myself, you know, a lot of people were saying like, what you know, what are you doing back home? And I just kept saying like, I'm just trying to find my feet. Um, and it was at a time when lots of people were training for the Point to Pinnacle race, which you're probably aware of, like the, the half marathon that goes up Mount Wellington. And um, my mum was living halfway up the mountain at that time. And so I'd be driving home in the evening after, you know, training or something. And I'd just see all these like adults like plodding up the road and make, making it look a little bit awkward and a, a little bit lonely and miserable. And and it sort of echoed something in me. And I, I started thinking like just, while I'm trying to find my feet, maybe I could pull all these adults together and we could do some primary school running games in the parks of Hobart. And um, it would just bide me time almost to work out, like, what am I going to do now, basically? Anyway, um, I embarked on this journey. It was never meant to be a business. It was it was purely a hobby. I, I made zero dollars on day one because I was too embarrassed to ask anyone for any money. And I made $5 on day two and, you know, it sort of evolved from there. But what became really apparent to me was um, I wasn't the only one with a story. And the, almost the thing that had brought us all together was that we were all just trying to find our feet. Um, in fact, it went further than that. And one day one of these beautiful men who happened to be a builder of all things came up to me and took me aside and he said, Han, like, it doesn't matter how beautiful the gift is you're trying to give others or us if you don't give the gift to yourself. And what he was basically meaning was you want us to look after ourselves and love life, you've got to do it too. And that really hit me really hard. And so that was kind of the starting point for me. Um, I actually jumped straight into life coaching of all random choices. I have a habit of this. And um, <laughs> it was extraordinary. It was just the most eye-opening year. Um, I wrote my thesis on 
um, the pursuit of happiness and how we have this sort of deep desire thinking that we need happiness when really what we're chasing is just authenticity um, and connection. And so that sort of really, I guess, spurred on this curiosity of like how do we live our most optimal life? Um, And then it it kind of flowed from there. I I went to the Australian Institute of Sport shortly after that, was working in athlete welfare, began to get really curious about what it was that defined a champion from just an athlete, an elite athlete. Um, And I watched them and and that sparked me to get back into racing. And, And the question that burns in me so deeply that was left unanswered was, could I get back to the top in a way that was... Um, running towards things, not like not a way, you know, in a, in a way that was super healthy and powerful and positive. And so that began to open up questions of needing to really know myself, like know what I love, know what would work for me, not just doing for the sake of doing, if that made sense. Um, so, yeah, so sort of fast forwarding, but, you know, three years into that journey, I was back at the top of the podiums in, in sport again. I was now racing ultra running, trail running, sky running, orienteering and um, and loving it, like just loving it. And um, But then it was interesting because I came back to Tassie again um, for a, a break and I thought oh it's been ages since I looked after myself truly like I should just go and get a blood test just just check in and make sure everything's cool and I rode my bike over to the GP and um, walked into her office and she's a bit of an authentic character as well and she looked me up and down she goes honey you need to find your femininity I was just like, my what? <laughs> like, she's talking to the ultimate tomboy at this moment. And I just was like, I looked at her, I had no idea what she meant, like zero. Anyway, she she handed me the script for the blood test and a card of a, turned out a psychologist in, in Hobart and said, I think you should give him a call. And look, I was in a great, I thought I was in a great frame of mind and I was about to turn 30 and I was loving life and anyway um I went home and I googled what femininity was got even more confused called this guy booked in for a session with him just because I again I was curious and that's my middle name and um that put me on this wild wacky journey of self-discovery and the first session he said to me what do you do for self-compassion, honey? <laughs> I was like, um, I was totally flawed. And um, I sat there for about a minute and then I suddenly remembered that I just booked a massage. I was like, huh, I booked a massage. And he looked at me and he goes, really? Is that for self-repair or self-compassion? <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> is, is there a difference? So, like, I guess it is a long story to answer a short question, but um, I don't think that there's one easy way to get to know oneself. I think you have to almost um, drop your guard, (laughs) open up um, to all of the present experiences and past experiences and almost see your role as being this big curious filter of all of that and to embrace um and question 
and learn and listen and read and write and go out into the mountains if that's where you're meant to be and fail and then thrive and just put together this piecemeal of experiences and be willing to to um to just try and interpret all of that and it do- that doesn't make it easy I get it um but that's been for me the the biggest thing and then once I'd done enough of that I then bumped into my mentor my hero's journey mentor who has helped me further along that pathway and she's a neuro-linguistic programmer sort of life coach performance coach and works with incredible people from all over the world and I just happened to bump into this woman and she has helped me even further but the the bulk of the work I did on my own just in, in awkward random situations and does that make sense? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Was there was there any particular? Because I know um, there'd be plenty of people out there who are a sucker for things like this. And this is a reason I used to listen a lot to Tim Ferriss's podcast because he used to just really delve into the questions on all right, what it, like on a on a daily schedule or on a practical schedule. What were some of the things that that really worked for you? Like um, I, I know myself and and my morning routine and my daily routines. They they often change just depending. We've just got a we've had a little we've got a little four month old at home now. So like the idea of, of just my morning quiet coffee and, you know, sitting down and just thinking about what's going to happen for the day has been thrown out the window because usually at 5.47, he's up and ready to go. And <laughs> I'll spend the first hour going like, what the heck is happening here? I didn't know this time of day existed. Um, but I know there's there's a few things like, uh, and it's such a it's such a 30-year-old, a 33-year-old bloke to say at the moment, but it's so valuable is, is meditation. For me, I'm a really big fan of just learning to, to sit back and watch thoughts or, or you know, watch my little projections um, and, and try to learn to, to attach less emotion to, which I'm getting a lot better at with practice. But um, are there any things like that on a practical scale that, that you do regularly that have really helped? Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. Um, I mean, the first thing that I would just say is that when I went into the, the, the psych's office um, for the second time, he said to me, honey femininity is not just wearing a dress (laughs) and um that really that really resonated with me and when I went away and I did more of my homework and listened to podcasts and began to read up more about it because I was very anti-feminism movement um it just made me realize that like finding your femininity was about just not rushing through life like a bull at a china gate and not just being goal-driven and um you know, like routine driven and that's more of, sadly, I mean, positively, but that's more of the masculine trait is, you know, the warrior mode. Whereas the feminine spirit is a bit more sort of um, in tune with the world. And I realized that I, I hadn't, I hadn't given myself enough of that time. Like I, you know, I'd get up in the morning and straight out the door and out for a run and I'd be off on a run. I loved running and I loved every minute of it, but I really wasn't noticing a lot of what I was running through and the world around me. And so so that sort of uh, some understanding of like wanting to find that slightly more in tune side of myself definitely led me into, um, I started personally with journaling. That was my my thing. So I'd get up first thing in the morning, make a cup of tea, Rather than pulling on my run gear, I'd stay in my PJs, I'd grab my journal and I'd just sit at the table and write. Um, and that's where a lot of the, the book writing confidence began to develop from as well. 
Um, I then started to try and practice presence when I was outside or doing tasks. So rather than just doing for the sake of doing, like to actually be much more aware of myself, my body. And actually that was really great from an athletic perspective because as someone who had had a history of overtraining and anorexia at times, not all the time, but at times, to suddenly become a lot more in tune with my body just was really helpful. It actually, I, I improved so much, so dramatically in that time as an athlete because I suddenly was able to go, today's not the day to do intervals. <laughs> you know, today's not the day to just bomb up Mount Wellington. Today's the day to be calm. And then that began to kind of make me realize that's what self-compassion is like it's almost more about self-acceptance isn't it and um so yeah so there was that and then um the further I sort of got in the actually helping people and coaching others was was really important to me as well because it's almost like you read in them what you read in self and that helped me develop a greater understanding um I started to then do a lot of yoga um and so yoga is another form of meditation I thought that I'd be horrendous at it <laughs> uh, just being still in one one place is not not my greatest strength but um the thing that I fell in love with the most was yin yoga yeah deep long hold stretching um I had some moments at the beginning where I almost felt overwhelmed by these tidal waves of emotion. And I think the body keeps the score. Wow. And I think that they were just long-held tensions and beliefs that just I had to let go of. Um, And so then I think through teaching myself presence in yoga and running and life and journaling, I began to kind of take that further into meditation and so meditation has become an informal part of my day as well but um I actually practice it in bed at night um so rather than just like read the book turn the light off go to sleep it became about building in like a 10 to 15 minute lying there whether I'm watching the world and focusing on breath and letting just letting the day dissolve um like fade to black or whether I'd shut my eyes and go through a much more formal like meditative process. But I just, what I realized then was that I just got into a much deeper sense of or state of sleep after that and woke up with a lot more clarity of mind rather than pulling day into day and and, like bleeding the colors together. So yeah, so like there's a few things that I've definitely done. And then obviously like from practical sense, you've got the trail running guidebook, but like really explored the phys- like from a physical perspective as an athlete and, and coaching others is how we structure our training to ensure that we build in time for these kinds of activities and build in time for parenthood and life and work. So rather than just a big mash of stress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, you touched on a few points there. Firstly, I reckon, yeah, the, I was thinking before you even said it, just you're, you're a really easy person to chat to. And I, I think I was trying to figure it out before you mentioned that presence thing. I was trying to figure out why why is it you're so easy, but I think it is that. Like it's, and and I recognise it. I think because it's something that I actually I feel like I struggle with a little bit when it comes to conversations. Is and this is again something I'm improving out of sight. I reckon if you had to compare it to three years ago, it's a, a new level. But I reckon probably just the pace that um, a lot of the time my mind will work at, even when I'm trying to be um, in the moment in a conversation. I have 15 other things 
distracting me. So you'll finish your sentence and I'll be like, uh, you know, like stereotype question, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And I think if there's something that forces you to get better at it and actually enjoy podcasting, it's it's being present and actually just trying to respond naturally to these questions. But but it's a really, I, I feel like it's a, or it, I don't feel, it seems to be a, a rare sort of commodity in today's world, especially I live in the CBD in Melbourne. We're about to move down to the coast on Saturday to Point Lonsdale, which is a nice space here in Melbourne. I don't know if you know it. Beautiful, yeah. Which is good. And a little bit of that is to to get away from, I guess, the the external hustle and bustle, but also um, just to, I I don't know, I guess it's literally and metaphorically a a breath of fresh air. It's it's just going to be a bit of a chance to to maybe slow down the pace of our life. And um, I guess it's sort of, matches what i feel like is going on with with me internally and my wife's excited for it and hopefully little child is excited for it but um the the idea that you are that you seem so present is that something that in a conversation has that always been fairly natural to you like have you been have you been told you're like an easy person to talk to before you started making all these changes in in yourself or is is that something fairly fairly recent um no i i think it's a more recent thing um if anything, you know, if I was to to rewind a long way, um, my brother and I, my brother particularly, but you know, me in a small way, experienced a lot of bullying as as kids. You know, could just we were a bit the misfit. We went to a a private school in Central Hobart, um, and we were growing up on a farm, fairly isolated. You know, running around in gum boots and climbing trees. You know, when other kids were maybe starting to think about alcohol and kissing boys. And um, in swimming, you know, my nickname was Bush Pig, and I, I was incredibly shy. You know, through those years, and very self-conscious because I I grew early. I, I hit puberty at eleven, and um, I was very just sort of self-conscious. So. I think where I think the work I have done on self, I think returning to the the parts of me that I love, the things that brought me alive as a kid, um, and and throughout my life has been really important in recent years. So we too moved to a little property. Um, I I began to get back in the mountains um, and like leaning into wild really crazy adventures you know an example was last year you know running the length of Pyrenees mountains through France um just I you know I was going to mention earlier when you were talking about you you know this dream to climb Everest but unlike you you know we're the what if we're a what if personality so rather than setting a goal based on like what am I going to do it's more like what if (laughs) that's a great way to put it there's a real power in that. It's also a real danger because we can go off on some massive tangents. But um, but I think you know, actually, just returning to my truth was really has given me presence. And um, but I think the other thing has just been, um, and I noticed this. I I'm also pregnant. Where where um, hey, looking congratulations. at congratulations. Thanks. First time parenthood hitting awesome, in April. Awesome. Very how, how, oh, April, did you say? April, yeah. Come on. yeah. But I just kind of realized um, that I was going to reach a point in this journey where I needed some more of my hobbies to not be physical. Um, in fact, I can't even do yoga because I'm allowed to, to do deep twisting and things. And so I needed other ways to be able to unwind. Um, 
And one thing that I've always loved has been art, but I haven't prioritised it at all. And since finishing the book, I sort of just felt like I needed a bit of a break from writing. So I've signed up to adult ed art classes, which means that Wednesday afternoons I spend with 70-year-olds drinking tea, eating cookies and (laughs) painting. Um, And I'm not stereotyping them beautiful. Um, I was... Like I haven't done art since I was um, first year uni. I I did a unit of life drawing at um, university. But I feel more confident now than I did before. And my work I actually love more now than I did before, but I've done no practice. And I thought, what is it? Like why why is this, how could this be possible? Um, And then I realised that I think it's because I've just become so unapologetically me that I'm not worried about what the teacher thinks of what I'm drawing and I'm not worried about, I'm not looking over my shoulder at what the other participants are doing. I'm purely focused on the moment that I'm in and my, you know, my expression. Mm. And um, I just had never really probably really seen the outcome of that, you know, like, and um, and art just gave me suddenly a visual representation of where I'd got to. And that that was like this massive aha moment of 2020 for me. It was just like, I think for now, until kiddo arrives and my world shifts again, um, I think I know who I am and I'm, there's no ego in it. I'm just happy being me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's such, it's such an awesome place to, to find yourself because I know um, I mentioned to you, I don't know if we were recording when I said this, but but my little creative outlet is the is the stand-up comedy. And it, it is nice in a way. It's uh, I guess I guess if you're doing a bad painting, it's not as embarrassing if you're in front of an audience and you're doing a bad five-minute set or whatever <laughs> because, like, the silence in the room just screams volumes. But, but that idea of um, I, I think the best comedians from what I can see, whether, you know, whether you agree with what they say or whether you don't, they're the ones who they're like, I love Ricky Gervais and I love him because he's like, all right, look, this is me. A lot of people aren't going to like me. Yeah. Um, I'm a little controversial, but but what, and I just, and it's true. It's whether it's dancing or whether it's art or whether it's comedy, there's something just so, I find it so inspiring just to see people who have, who have tapped into that thing and you can, you can just see that they're in their, in yeah. their, their little world. They're not, yeah, as you say, they're not looking over their shoulder to see what the teacher or the other participants are thinking. They're just like, no, here, this is, this is how it is. Um, <laughs> But a powerful place to be, but a, a difficult thing to to sometimes reach because it's I, I know firsthand how how much I can adjust my behaviour to try and impress the people that I'm hanging around with yeah. or try and get their approval and and it, it's hard to sometimes be questioned and and you know um, judged on yeah yeah do you know what I'm trying to say yeah, definitely and I, I mean for me like you mentioned the hero's journey before but I think that. We so the, for those people who don't know the hero's journey, but basically we we live in our old world. We get this calling that there's this new world waiting for us. We don't know what that is. Eventually, the calling becomes too strong. We cross the threshold. Normally, we meet a mentor. The mentor teaches us the tools and tricks that we need to overcome our inner test allies and enemies on the lead up to some big ordeal, of which we either can lean in and overcome the ordeal or we can be turned away and that can happen 
But should we succeed in overcoming the ordeal, it has to often be solo. <laughs> um, then we return to this new world with this enriched elixir, um, a new gift to, that strengthens us and that we often pass forward to others. That That's the, the hero's journey and all our favourite movies and books and characters are all based on the hero's journey. But um, I think that this sad sense of being so settled and comfortable in my own two shoes was actually the elixir I gained um, most re- from my most recent hero's journey, which happened last year. Um, the ordeal was running the, the French Pyrenees Mountains that I just mentioned. It was it was such a silly, silly journey. Um, I'd had the what if <laughs> about a year before and and like we'd just been in France. We were there with one of our running tours and my husband um, saw this little like red and white sign that had GR10 written on it and he'd said to me, do you know what that is? And I said, no, no, I have no idea. And he goes, ah, I think it's this trail that goes from the Atlantic coastline up, you know, on the English end of France. All I, can't the way- believe it. I can't believe he told you that. I can't <laughs> believe he told you what it was. He should have known what was coming. Uh, yeah, it goes all, all the way down to the Mediterranean, and um, I was like, "Oh, all right, like, how far is it?" And he goes, "Ah, oh, I think it's about seven hundred k." I was like, "Oh, wow, gosh!" And I said, "Yeah, it's just like, do people do the whole thing?" He goes, "Yeah," and he goes, "Oh, how long would that roughly take?" And he goes, "Oh, I think people take about three weeks." <laughs> I mean, if you just sit down and you think through the numbers, that just doesn't make sense at all. And um. <laughs> Anyway, so in my head I had, oh, it's like 700K in about three weeks. And I was like, cool, wouldn't that be amazing to do that? Do you reckon we could do that? And he goes, well, I don't see why not. <laughs> so I came home from that year before with this, like, it's about 700K in three weeks and wouldn't that be a cool thing to do kind of dream. And um, and then I broke my foot at the end of the year and um I cracked the big toe joint, which is not a great thing for someone who loves to be on their feet. And I thought, right, I need something to look for. I need a dream to look forward to. And so um, with my husband's permission, I booked flights to Europe off the back of our tour season over there and and left three weeks. And we we hadn't yet had a honeymoon since we got married three years ago. And we were sort of well overdue for like a really prolonged period of time away together. Anyway, my foot didn't get better and um, I finally found myself on the, on the plane to Europe. I was just able to run enough to kind of guide the tours but certainly not to run 700 kilometres down the French Pyrenees Mountains and so we just decided it wasn't going to happen. So we'd left everything in Australia that you would ever need to do and do this adventure. But I just couldn't get this bug out of my system and so with about two days before this three-week gap that we still had no clue what we were going to do because nothing felt as vibrant and calling as running the length of the French Pyrenees Mountains, we thought, bugger it, let's just go and do it. Let's just let's just go and start, you know, because my definition of success had been not about finishing but more about leaning in, you know. And um, and so we thought, well, we'll just lean in and and if one day in it doesn't feel right, then we'll hire a bug and we'll go and sit on a beach in southern Italy, I don't know. And so um, anyway, to shorten the story, but um, 
it turns out that the French Pyrenees Mountains are actually close to 900 kilometres. The GR10 trail, which I thought was going to stay relatively flat and coast around the mountains, happens to have 45,000 metres of vertical climbing. Um, it's not a great idea to turn up to the start of a track without a pair of shoes um, and buy the only pair in your size in the local running store. Um nor is it a good idea to turn up with three heatways and have no sports nutrition and chew your way down the French Pyrenees Mountains on, like, Alan's lollies. <laughs> but anyway, the journey unfolded and it initially began as a physical challenge. It was like, physically, this is a bloody long way. You know, about three days into thinking it was physical, um, my body was about to combust, I think, and um, it was a heat wave going on and it became very mental. It was like, how how can I do this? And, and what do I need to eat and how far should I run and what's the strategy for today? And I got so in my head and for about a week I was just in my head just chewing things over it. At this point, my husband had decided this wasn't for him and he had indeed hired a car and he became my support crew. But it was like all mental. And then about a week in, something shifted in me and it became unbelievably emotional. And I'd be out here in the mountains on my own. Um, my husband might have let run in for a while, gone back, got the car, driven around, come to find me. But huge amounts of the day I was just on my own running in the mountains and I felt so guilty I felt so guilty and emotional and I'd have these massive highs but then by the evening I might be crying out of guilt that we were on this three-week holiday that we you know were so long overdue by this point and we left a business back in Australia we were spending money we didn't have to be doing this thing and here I was just running in the mountains selfishly and then eventually, about two weeks in, with about a week to go, um, it became suddenly just so quiet. <laughs> like It was like my body went quiet, my mind went quiet, my emotions went quiet, and I just found myself just being in the moment um, and reveling in that. And I kept picturing the... The, the ocean and the Mediterranean and the white sands and the warm water and the swim that I was going to have. And as I was running down through the last town, you know, with the ocean coming up, like I kept thinking like surely I'm going to feel something soon. <laughs> surely the pain's going to kick in. Surely I'm going to want to hug and kiss and high-five my husband. And, yeah, we did it, go us. But um, I remember getting to the rocky beach the water was freezing it was very unappealing to swim and sitting down on on this rocky beach and just feeling nothing and it was like I call that a spiritual place it was like I'd gone on this emotional to mental sorry um physical to mental to emotional to spiritual journey and um and in doing so I'd I'd overcome my large ordeal I'd overcome those mountains of the hero's journey and the elixir I'd gained was just the absolute power of living unapologetically in, in alignment with yourself and your dreams. 
And even though, yes, like it didn't intimately involve my husband at every minute of the day, we still say to one another it was the best thing we've ever done in our entire lives. The intimacy that we had in the evenings when we were sharing our stories, the coming home with such a deeper sense of so many varied understandings that I can pass on to others, like um, just this confidence of self that I've never felt before. Um, It wasn't even just making it from one end to the other. It was just about allowing myself to go through those four stages and reaching this point of like, this is where I'm actually at my best. This is what I live for. This is, this is the life that will make myself jealous when I'm growing old. Um, and so it is a really long story, but I think it's so important to state that last year got me, launched me to where I am now. And it was purely because I dreamt bigger than I could think I could dream I lent into something and I just chased it unapologetically and I think if anyone ever has that toe tingling sensation where you just want to do something that much it's your hero's journey calling you (laughs) and I think you just need to just trust that leaning in and even if there's a selfishness about it you'll repay that in swords later you really will (laughs) yeah no that is unreal that's such good advice that's really good advice look i i told you i told you about now and we've just ticked over so maybe we could close with um and hopefully this is one of a one of many if you're up for it because i I feel like i could talk to you for forever um but uh but have you got any other big adventures on the horizon anything else you're aiming towards apart from i I guess next april is probably the uh the big one at the moment yeah I think I mean I think that that's the big one I I was really blessed this year I um, did my first huge solo mission in Tasmania where I um, ran through the Western Arthurs so that had to be honest been one of those like lifelong dreams one of those ones that that would be cool if maybe one day I could do that and and that happened this year and I just towards the end of that I just had this real deep sense that I was kind of done for a while. It wasn't that I didn't want to I didn't want to do it. I just had this funny feeling in my system that something else was beckoning. Um and parenthood wasn't necessarily super overly planned. You know, it wasn't not planned, but it certainly wasn't super planned. And yeah. uh, and randomly like it was a couple of months after that that I fell pregnant. And so I think that for now, you know, I think I need to kind of listen to that and just accept that that's where I'm at. And But I know now, I know that I find my truest self when I am doing silly adventures and I'm we already have a bucket list for kiddo that <laughs> all these adventures that we can kind of incorporate him into. When, um, and, yeah, you like as you would know, you walk on a beach and, you no longer go for a walk on a beach, but you find yourself staring at all the rock pools thinking, oh, this will be a great place to come. <laughs> so, true. so like you start looking at the world in a different light and I I just kind of wanted like not, not fight the spirits at that point and just sort of let that world unfold because I think if I – if I go into a bit more open-minded, I think so many adventures are going to pop up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that is awesome. Well, hopefully hopefully we can talk before then or around then or whenever you've got a, another hour to chat. But I'm, uh, I'm so glad to have the chance to sit down with you and that was that was inspiring for me. So I'm sure there's plenty of people listening who, who feel exactly the same way. So thanks for stopping by. 
Oh, it's such a pleasure, Tyson. Thanks for having me.